you've got your Bibles, let's open to John chapter 11. And we'll hopefully get through the first 44 verses today. And finish the chapter next week, God willing. So, a bit of background. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, have been really antagonistic and hateful towards Jesus. And so it got so tough and so dangerous for Jesus to be around Jerusalem and Judea that he retreated to Bethabara, and that's where he was first baptized by John, just over three years before. And it was where he was baptized by the Holy Spirit and he started his public ministry. And we read last week, people were coming out to him, believing in him and being refreshed by him. Now, a couple of months have gone by. So from last week to now, Seven days for us, but it's a couple of months, two or three months for Jesus, right? And the reason that Jesus comes in is because Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus saying that the one you love is sick, Lazarus. So I'm just going to jump in and start reading. It's John 11, I'm just going to read the first 44 verses, get the story, and then we'll go through it. Oh, I'll pray first, that'll help. Father, thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. I thank you. Lord, for the beautiful people that are here, and I thank you for the beautiful fellowship that we're experiencing. And I just pray that you will continue to teach us and lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, And after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Chirpy fellow. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha 
as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how much he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Well, it's an amazing story. So you got this situation where Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they live in their family home. And they've become friends with this radical rabbi, a controversial figure, a miracle worker named Jesus of Nazareth. So think of it in the day, that's basically what it was like. It's not safe being friends with radicals. And as they opened up their hearts to him, they opened up the home to him and he stayed there quite a lot actually as he went through. So Jesus greatly appreciated their hospitality and the friendship that he experienced with them. But just because they had this relationship with Jesus doesn't mean everything was going to be 
perfect for them, that they weren't going to have problems. And what we're going to see here is that, and I think we can testify, those who have us walking with the Lord for a while, that even though we walk closely with the Lord, we still go through hard times. And so this is a picture of how do we cope with those hard times. So we'll start with verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. That's coming soon. That's the next chapter. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, him whom you love is sick. So it's about 20 miles from Bethany to Bethabara. So let's say about, what's that, uh, 32 kilometers. About a day's walk. But let's focus on the love word here. The one that loves you is sick. Is that what they said? Or did they say the one whom you love is sick? Mm, The one whom you love. So we approach Jesus on the basis of his love for us because that's constant. Whereas our love for him is pretty fickle sometimes. You know, sometimes we express our love to him and other times we're kind of self-focused and we don't. But when we come to the Lord, his love is constant. It's fixed and it's firm. He's never surprised by what I say, never taken aback by what I do. And so when we go to the Lord, we go to the Lord based on his love because we know that he always loves us. Now, what word do you think is used here for the word love? Is it agapo or is it phileo? Hmm, It's phileo, and that refers to affection or friendship. So some people might think, or maybe you've thought before, that the Lord loves you because he is love and therefore he has to love you. Like he's got no choice. I've got to love that person. I've got to do nice things for this person. No. Remember he says in John 15, 15, I have not called you servants but friends. So Jesus loves us with an agape love, but he also loves us with a phileo love. It's a a friendship, brotherly love. He chose to love us and he loves us as he loves a friend. He desires to be with us. And another thing here is that Mary and Martha didn't instruct the Lord concerning what he should do. So these are, are wise ladies. They didn't say, God, come down and heal my brother or do this or do that. They just said, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And they left the problem in Jesus' hands. And the temptation is, at least for me, it might be for you as well, is to say to the Lord, you know, we've got this problem and I think you need to do this. And Isaiah forty thirteen says, Who has given the Lord counsel? I don't think anyone should try. He's a lot wiser than us. They weren't commanding, they were communing. They were putting First Peter 5, 7 into practice. Give all your worries or cast your care upon God, for he cares about you. And when we do that, it's great, because suddenly the burden's lifted. And it's, you know, we take it to Jesus. It's like a burden lifted off his shoulders. But you know what? We cast our cares on the Lord, we pray, and then we get up from prayer and we put them back on our shoulders and we keep on going. And we need to learn to leave them with him. And then in verse 4 to 6, 
When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So lots of questions about this little passage here. Mary. Mary is always elevated. Mary is the one who sits at Jesus' feet. Martha's, oh, she's the one who doesn't have time for Jesus. She's too busy cooking, all that kind of stuff, you know. How does the Holy Spirit write this? He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. So it's demonstrating that God loves everybody. And even the ones who might not be so spiritual or or whatever you want to call it, they're still loved too. And all equally. Okay? There's no favorites in God's kingdom. And once again, like we covered before with a blind man, they asked, is the man blind because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? And God says, Jesus says, no, it's for the glory of God. And here, what does Jesus say? This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. So, sin can bring suffering. That's if we do something silly. We sin and we can suffer for that. But other suffering can come into our lives too. And that's okay, because God uses it to bring blessing to us and glory to him. And think of it this way. An athlete trains and trains, works hard, and, you know, constantly subjecting himself to strict discipline. Why? So we can run in the race. Okay? And God is strengthening us. How can we keep up if we don't train, if our faith isn't being tested and strengthened? So here's what I think happened. All right? So there's a bit of guesswork here. There's a few assumptions. So for people back then, 20 miles or 32 kilometers would have been a one-day walk. So I did a bit of Googling and found that out. That was normal to walk 32 k's in a day. And because of the, the hot climate, bodies would decompose quickly, so they would be buried on the day of death, within eight hours of the person dying. So they would have time to say, quickly say goodbye to the, to the deceased, prepare the body with the herbs and spices and things, wrap it up, and then put it in the tomb. And then the mourning would continue for about seven days at the family home. So the first day was the messenger or the servant going from Martha and Mary to Jesus. And so Lazarus would have had to die on that day. So the day that the messenger was sent, Lazarus died and was buried and put in the tomb. And so the the messenger comes back. That's day two. And that's the first day that Jesus is waiting. And then Jesus waits another day, which is day three. And then he travels on day four. So when he gets back on day four, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. So imagine if you're the messenger, the servant, probably a a friend of the family, and you're coming back, oh, I can't wait to tell Mary and Martha that Lazarus is going to get better. The sickness is not unto death. And you get back and you find the funeral's already happened. He died yesterday. But that's when Jesus told me that, you know, the sickness is not unto death. And also, put yourself in that messenger's shoes. So what did Jesus tell you? Um, The sickness is not unto death, but if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Really? You sure? (laughs) Yeah. So, 
confusion, bewilderment, you know? Well, God does that sometimes. And I'll just share a personal story. God had clearly shown us that we were meant to go to Bible college in the States. And we had accommodation lined up, but then we get there and we didn't have any accommodation lined up. They said, no, we we can't find any private room to rent for you. The college says, no, we're not renting out dormitories to married couples anymore. Absolutely not. And we didn't have funds to rent a house. So unless we were going to be homeless, maybe we had to go home again. So, but we didn't say that. We just, we were just praying and thinking and saying, but God, you showed us clearly that coming here was your will and you lined so many things up, but now you seem to be shutting the door. You seem to be contradicting yourself. And at the airport, oh, two-year Bible college course. Can't wait. Okay, we get to the airport coming through customs in America and uh, no, this is wrong. You've only got one year. You have to apply again for the second year and you might not be able to stay. And often you get sent home. So, Okay, so that's all on the same day. And we're thinking, God, what are you doing? In the end, God did keep his promise. We were there for two years, like he had promised, like he had shown us initially. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus make them go through all this pain? Well, he wants to give them an amazing revelation of who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. He wants to give them a demonstration of his power. He wants to reveal something to them. He wants them to experience a part of who he is. The problem is, if you're going to raise someone from the dead, someone's going to die first. So Jesus can't say, well, I'd like to raise someone from the dead, but no one's died, so what am I going to do? So he allows Lazarus to die. If you go to verses 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? And then in verse 40, Jesus says to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And in the Gospels, Jesus says that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, there will be no life. It's not going to grow. So this is an application. If in our lives the hope that we have in ourselves and in those around us and um, the resources that we have, if that doesn't die, it's like the seed dying in the ground, all human hope, all self-reliance is dead, then we see God working. It's only when God brings us to that place of death to self-reliance that we can truly see if we are trusting God or trusting ourselves. Will we keep on hoping or will we give up? It's easy to say, yeah, I trust God for healing for my um, for my broken leg. And you know, I believe that God's going to make it better. But are you trusting God or are you just trusting the doctors who have set your leg? You know. But if the doctors say, we can't do anything with this leg, we're really sorry, we're going to have to amputate. And then you pray and, you, and God might say, well, I'm going to heal it or, or not. And then that's you know that it's God. And Jesus is demonstrating that his delays are not denials. Instead, his delays are bringing opportunities to bring greater glory to God. And so that's the way we should look at God's delays. You remember he says, yes, no, and wait. That's his answer to prayer. Uh, verse 7, 
Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again. So you're going back to Jerusalem, Lord, warned his disciples. They're out to get you there. In other words, in modern lingo, this is a suicide mission. You've got to be crazy. Are you insane? Are you thinking straight? And as a little analogy, you know, you might as well go to North Korea and start preaching outside the police station. You've got more chance of not getting arrested there. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. So, don't worry, Jesus answered. We're going to Jerusalem, but don't worry, it's still daylight. There are still things for me to do before the night falls. And the night, I believe, is referring to the cross when Jesus does die, when his work on earth is finished. But until that time, he needs to keep working. So I like this idea that we're indestructible until God calls us home. God's got a work for us to do. And until we've finished that work, the devil can't touch us, death can't touch us, because God is protecting us. You look at all the times that they went to stone Jesus. And God kept on, the Father kept on protecting him. So the Bible says man is appointed to die once, physically, Hebrews 9.27. And it doesn't matter how many airbags you have in your car or how many injections of vitamin C you take, one day you will still die. Okay. So if God says, do something, and you think, well, that's dangerous, trust him. If God says, wait and back off, then you use your wisdom and back off. But sometimes we need to take a risk, and Jesus is taking a risk here. And it reminds me of a couple of stories. Uh, a pastor in Iraq, and ISIS tried to burn him three times, but he wouldn't burn. It wasn't his time. okay? And so he just kept on going. He's still probably preaching today. Another example is when ISIS herded believers into a bus and threw in you know, three or four grenades just to kill them. You know, They're like, you know, using um, grandiose ways of killing people. But the grenades exploded, but none of the believers were hurt. It wasn't their time, okay? And then there's the Apostle John, and they say that they tried to cook him in boiling oil, but he didn't die either. So these are modern-day examples of Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, you know, where the fire does not affect them, the, the lions don't eat them. But of course, they all died eventually. But until our work is done, God will look after us. Verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So, why were the disciples confused? Because Jesus says his sickness is not unto death. And so Jesus has to explain to them bluntly, Lazarus is dead. And the disciples are going, huh? Just like Mary and Martha going, huh? I don't understand. So the whole family, the disciples are all wondering what's going on. Why did Jesus say that the sickness is not unto death and yet there is death? So, and then he says in verse 15, 
And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So, everyone else is perplexed and wondering what's going on, and Jesus is glad. Why? That you may believe. What's his purpose in sifting us and putting us through these trials? To increase our faith. Our faith in him. He knew that this event that began with grief and confusion would end in belief. So Lazarus is dead and I am glad. So Jesus could be glad because he knows the outcome. Okay? God knows the end from the beginning. And so this is where we need to trust him. So Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So think of Moses sent to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. Moses is obedient to God. And the result, as you know, Pharaoh stops providing straw, and the people are scampering all over Egypt looking for straw and getting beaten for not producing their quota of bricks. So one minute they're worshipping God when they first met Moses, or saw Moses again, but the next day they want to stone Moses. And Moses cries out, God, what are you doing? And uh, that verse is up there now. It says, Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested. This is a New Living Translation. Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman? He has been even more brutal to your people and you have done nothing to rescue them. Sounds familiar to our story today, doesn't it? God says, I'm going to deliver them. But what happens? Things get worse. The bondage gets worse. So I'd like to suggest to you that faith is simply a matter of perspective. And Hebrews eleven fifteen and 16. If they had longed for the country where they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And I've heard it said before that looking at our lives from this side of heaven is like looking at the back of a tapestry, like one of those big woven pictures. You know, All you see is a mess of different colored threads, and you think, this is a mess. And it is from this side. But on the other side, it's a beautiful picture. The story of our life is a beautiful picture. And we need to have faith in God's goodness toward us. Now, last week we sang the song, uh, My Hope. And one of the lines in there says, I don't know where you'll take me, but I know you're always good. So I don't know where you'll take me, but I know you're always good. And that's the faith that God wants us to have. I have no idea how life is going to turn out, but I'm going to trust that your heart toward me is one of the good, that you're doing this for my good. And I'd like to use Sarah as an example. Sarah received a promise that she would have a baby. But after waiting over 10 years, I'm, I'm guessing, this is my guess, that she probably went into menopause and figured out that, oh, this can't happen now. It's physically impossible. So the situation in her eyes seemed hopeless. So she took matters into her own hands and gave her Egyptian servant Hagar to Abraham to have a child. And Hagar conceives and has a child and she mocks Sarah and says, Ha ha, I've got a child and you don't. And in that culture, that was a 
terrible thing. And so, you know, Sarah has to live with these put-downs and this teasing and mocking for the next 13 years while she's still barren. And then God comes to her the year before when she's 89 and Abraham's 99 and says, you're going to have a child. He reaffirms a promise. And Sarah is in the tent and she laughs in unbelief. So all this time, she's looking at her own circumstances and she says, nah. But then you look at the history or the summary of her life in Hebrews 11.11 and she makes it into the Hall of Faith. It says, it was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child and though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. And you look at her life and you say, oh, where did Sarah demonstrate faith? Just a little bit, okay? And to me, it just shows how merciful God is. We are so weak in our faith, and yet he is so strong. He is so merciful. Psalm 103, 13 to 14, The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. And 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So I read that again. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So it's all about his promises. It's not about how strong our faith is because it's God who's made the promise. So Mary and Martha have lost hope in God's goodness to them personally. But as I just said, God's promises don't depend on our faith. They are God's promises, not ours. So he's the one who's obligated to keep them. So when all seems lost, and the only way that it seems that God will be able to do what he said he would do is by some kind of miracle, then expect a miracle. (laughs) It's that simple. That's the whole point of this. We need to come to that place where it's only God can do something. So if you want to see something amazing, something inspiring, something that only God can do, then all the human elements, all the self-reliance, they need to be put aside and got rid of. Otherwise, we can give the credit to some other factor for help or even give credit to ourselves. And now I want to go to Gideon. Think about Gideon with his 300 men. God kept telling him, you've got too many men. And he says in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Interesting, eh? So God delights in acting on our behalf, in using us to show the world that he is the only true God. The wonder-working God, the real God, the powerful God, and most of all, the faithful God who never lets his children down. But we need to be patient. The answer to our prayers could be a long time coming. And in that time, we have a choice. We can either live with an attitude of defeat or an attitude of expectation. And it all depends on our faith, which we've talked about before, is a matter of perspective. So Sarah lived most of her life looking down, saying, God has prevented me from having children. That was her mindset. Genesis 16.2 Instead, she could have been rejoicing with Abraham for 25 years about the coming baby boy that God had promised. Like, wow, Abraham, this is going to be some birth. I keep on telling people that I'm going to have a son, and they keep on telling me I'm crazy. And the longer that God keeps me waiting, the crazy they think I am. But Abraham, when that day comes, 
people will know beyond a doubt that God is real and that he can do miracles and that he always keeps his promises. I'm so excited to see how God is going to keep this promise because I don't have a clue. Thank you, Lord, for my baby. I worship you. Just a different perspective. That's all it is. So later, Sarah was happy and thankful and she named Isaac Isaac because his name means laughter. But she failed to worship and be thankful before the birth. And how much unnecessary suffering did you put herself through? But at the end of the day, it's how we finish that counts. And God gave his commendation to Sarah because it says, by faith, Sarah conceived. Okay, So if we do fail, it's actually okay because God is faithful and he will complete what he has started. I love that verse. God completes what he begins. And this verse in Peter helps us to understand, First Peter 1.18 helps us to understand how we can rejoice through the trial and not just in the deliverance. So it's 1 Peter one eighteen. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So we don't know the answers now, but we can still choose to trust him and rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy which is completely independent from our circumstances and you know it talks about the cloud of witnesses there's a whole lot of people who have gone through before us and who are going through um, situations has God let any of them down (laughs) no and it says just to make this realistic in Hebrews it says that some of those people even died without receiving those promises Like, for example, Abraham, God says, I'm going to give you the land. Well, Abraham didn't receive it, but he believed that his descendants would. Okay, So sometimes the promises that God gives us might not even be fulfilled in our lives. It might be for our kids or something, and it'll be given when we die. So don't lose hope. Those guys didn't lose hope. We shouldn't lose hope. Those guys had much less to go on than we do today. So then Thomas, who is called the twin, verse 16, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, they say that he's called the twin because he looks a lot like Jesus. So that's what one of the early church traditions say. So if that's the case, then he's the one in most danger if they go to Jerusalem because he looks most like Jesus. But despite that, this shows that he is devoted to Jesus because his attitude is, let us go with him that we may die with him. The other disciples were saying, don't go near Jerusalem. And Thomas says, let's go and die too. (laughs) So this shows to me real devotion and true courage. He's willing to go wherever Jesus goes, wherever Jesus wants to go, even if it's going to cost him his life. And that's what Jesus wants for us too. This dedication, this devotion to him, where he is first. And a couple of quotes on this. Thomas expresses what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He's willing to go with Jesus, even if it means dying with him. Thomas may not have understood it at the time, but we can know today that if we die with him, we will surely be raised and glorified with him. Another quote, Thomas, like the other disciples, didn't understand all that Jesus said or meant. It's interesting, isn't it? He didn't understand all that Jesus said or meant, but what he did know was enough to make him willing to die with and for Jesus. 
We don't have to know all the facts. We just need to trust in what he has given us already. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. So why four days? Well, Jewish tradition, they have this superstition that said a soul stays near the grave for three days hoping to return to the body. Therefore, it was accepted after four days there was absolutely no hope of resuscitation. And the body also is decaying away beyond repair. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. Now, this breaks Oriental or Eastern custom and tradition. You'd have to wait till you're called before you'd go out. But it's like Peter jumping out of the boat and you know and swimming in when all the other disciples stayed in the boat and rowed the boat in. And so it's just a different personality. And Mary was sitting in the house. So Mary is a bit like John the Apostle, a bit of a contemplator. Verse 21, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So this shows that we can be honest with God. This is how I feel. I can... We can share with to God, with God, exactly how we're feeling. But then she goes on, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And so she's disappointed in the circumstances, she's suffering in the circumstances, she's communicated that to God, to Jesus. But she hasn't lost heart. She still trusts God. She's still trusting Now, it says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, it doesn't mean she's confident that Jesus is going to raise her brother. Rather, it says that she believes in him despite the disappointment. So, she's saying that regardless of whether, you know, Lazarus comes back to life, regardless of this disappointment, I'm still going to believe in you. I'm not going to give up. And Jesus responds to her faith and he says, your brother will rise again. Now, this is going back to this sickness is not unto death. So Jesus has given a promise, and he's reiterating that promise. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha takes this promise, your brother will rise again. This sickness is not unto death. And instead of embracing it joyfully and expectantly, she looks at it from a, as a theological principle. So we can sometimes do this. The Lord shows us a promise in the word about a situation, a relationship or a financial struggle, and you think, well, this probably doesn't apply to this dispensation. This really can't be true for me today. Come on. The Lord isn't really going to bless, heal or restore, help me. There must be some other meaning theologically. It's just too good to be true. And that's what Martha's thinking. She's relegating this promise of God, which is for her right there and then. Jesus is intending to raise Lazarus from the dead, and she's saying, yeah, yeah, I know the principle that God's going to raise everyone at the last day. She's still not applying God's promises to herself. So, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
Notice he says that. Do you believe this? So let's just go back to the first part of that. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So Jesus is the champion over death. He has defeated death. So the world fears death. And Hebrew says, I can't remember the verse now, but the whole world is in living in the fear of death, in bondage to the fear of death. But we don't need to. Why? Because though he may die, he shall live. We don't actually die. We just make a transition from an old life to the new life. It's like falling asleep. One minute you're conscious in this world, if you want to say that, and then the next minute you're in your own little dream world. <laughs> and you're hopefully enjoying a nice dream. But it's when we die, when our heart stops beating and our brain stops working, then we're not here anymore. We're in heaven to be with Jesus. Now, just coming back to the deity of Jesus Christ, this book of John consistently is evidence that Jesus is God. Now, who could possibly say this? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. I mean, who can say that? Here's um, what C.S. Lewis says in The Case for Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, and is, the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't let that open to us. He didn't intend to. So that was C.S. Lewis. And then come back to that phrase, do you believe this? So it's not enough to know something. We need to put it into practice. Practically, do you believe this? Are you going to take this on as being for you? Personally. And then she continues in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Okay, and so again, she has faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God. But she's still struggling with this whole thing. Is Jesus really interested in helping me? Is he really going to do something for me? And when she had said these things, she went her way. And so... She gets sidetracked, all this theological stuff, and she's missing the promise that Jesus is making. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And she goes, yeah, I know, you're going to raise everyone from the dead. No, Lazarus. And she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Now, Mary is more when you stick with the traditions of the day. She's holding on to the Eastern traditions. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. And that was normal. If they went out from the house, they'd go to the tomb. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. So in Luke chapter 10, Mary, in the happy time, is at his feet. Here, in the time of sadness, 
you know, just um, four days after Lazarus has died, that, that time of when the grief is really starting to set in, where is she? She's at his feet. She's worshipping. And you know, I mentioned before that you know there's some people who will worship God in the hard times because there's problems and they draw and they say, "Go, oh, I need to go to God." And when the hard times are gone, they just, "Oh, I don't need God anymore." Others, they worship God in the good times. When the hard times comes, they get frustrated and you know, and they say, "Oh, what's the point of following God when all these problems happen?" But we want to be like Mary who regardless of the circumstances, find themselves always at Jesus' feet. And that's how we find true intimacy with the Lord. So just always remain at his feet, always spend time with him. So at his feet, for us, we can't literally be at his feet, right? But we can be in that quiet place, in that closet, you know what I mean? Jesus said, go into your closet and pray. Dedicated time with him, praying to him and reading his word. And Jesus really enjoys that time that we spend with him. Uh, saying to him, and Mary is, says the same thing as Martha does. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, you know what? When you spend a lot of time around someone, you start to pick up their language, you start to pick up their attitude. And that's why it's really important that we choose our friends carefully so we don't have people who are going to pull us down, but rather we have people who are going to encourage us. Because if we have friends who are grumbling and complaining and doubting, then most likely we're going to become like that. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35. But coming back to he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. So that word groaned in the spirit, I read that in the ancient Greek, it literally means to snort like a horse, implying anger and indignation. So it means that Jesus wasn't so much sad at the scene surrounding the tomb of Lazarus. It's more accurate to say that Jesus was angry. Jesus is angry and troubled at the ravages of the great enemy of man, death. He won't settle for this dominion of death much longer. He doesn't like to see us suffer. Death causes suffering. Sin causes death and suffering. And Jesus is going to defeat that very shortly. Now, Jesus saw her weeping. Jesus wept. The word for Mary's weeping is uncontrolled weeping, a loud wailing. Whereas when it says Jesus wept, it's a, a quiet sobbing. He's greatly moved, but he's not out of control. Now, this tells us a lot about God. So to the mind, this is a quote, to the mind of the ancient Greek, the primary characteristic of God was apatheia, the total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. That's what, where we get a word apathetic from today. So the Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless, and compassionless God. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not what you see here. Here you see that Jesus is a man of compassion. So, and there's a quote from Ray Comfort here. In one sense, this verse is a mystery because Jesus knew what he was about to do. He was about to give Mary and Martha the greatest gift outside of salvation that they could ever hope for. Yet, he wept. The prophets tell us that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Isaiah 53.3 He was moved with compassion for the multitudes, wept over Jerusalem, and knew what it was to weep with those who weep. Romans 12.15 Even though heaven is before us, it pains the head of the body when the foot hurts. So when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So Jesus, as a high priest, can sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15 So as the mourners are wailing, as Mary is weeping and wailing, as Jesus is at the scene, he finds himself also crying. So here's some possible reasons why Jesus could be weeping, because we don't know. He's moved, obviously, but what was the, the main thing there? Well, here's some ideas that people have had. We'll finish on this. Perhaps Jesus wept because he was reminded that sin destroys, sin kills, and sin stinks. And so you see all the heartache and sadness around you because of sin. Does that make your heart heavy sometimes? Well, maybe that's why Jesus wept. Maybe Jesus wept because of the unbelief that surrounded him. He had given a promise that Lazarus would rise, but no one embraced or believed it. On the contrary, they're all still wailing. Even Mary is still wailing. She's worshipping, but she's still wailing. Jesus said, it's going to be all right. But they said, no, it's not. And for us today, Jesus says, all things are working together for good. And we say, no, they're not. Because that's our attitude sometimes, right? Perhaps Jesus wept because he knew he was going to pull Lazarus out of paradise and bring him back to this planet. He's going, oh, poor Lazarus, I'm so sorry to do this to you. Perhaps Jesus wept because although he knew everything would turn out well eventually, those around him were hurting now. And again, like Ray Comfort said, Jesus in the book of Hebrews is shown as a great high priest who sympathizes with us, feels for us, and prays for us on our behalf. So even though I should be stronger in faith when I'm hurting, Jesus hurts too. And I shared that verse from Isaiah. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He goes through things with us. So this brings together the deity and the humanity of our Lord. So just remember from today that sometimes God's delays are actually opportunities for us to be blessed and for him to receive glory. They would never have known Jesus as the resurrection and the life unless they had experienced Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus is creating an opportunity and he's glad that these people are going to see him as and experience him as the resurrection and the life. And so when God does things in our lives, we should have this expectation. Wow, God's going to do something here. It's not really nice going through it, but I'm really looking forward to what God is going to reveal to me about himself. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these verses. Help us to have faith, Lord, and to worship and to be at your feet. And Lord, when you give us a promise, and there's many promises in your word, help us to hold on to those and to apply them to ourselves personally, to remember that you care personally for us, that each one of us is individually important to you, no matter what our circumstances might be. And those circumstances are designed to be a blessing for us, to help us to grow, to help us to experience you in in new and more intimate ways. Help us to be excited about that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.